0: So this morning, we're, we're, it's Prayer Sunday, and, and like I said, we're going to walk through a prayer in the Old Testament. We're going to walk through Hannah's prayer in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2. It's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful prayer by an amazing woman. Um, but, but before we do that, I thought maybe just to give some context, uh, just to, to set the tone for, for the actual prayer, um, because you're going to need to know some of this information to understand why she was saying the things that she was saying. All right, and like I said, it's going to be a really interesting morning, uh, so we're going to have four different people come up and break the prayer up into four parts. We're going to sing and pray in response to some of that, and so my hope is that God would do something more powerful than we could ever imagine right here through uh, his very word uh, as we sing and as we pray with and for one another. So just to give context, I'm going to read First Samuel chapter 1, all right, and just the first 20 verses just to, to set the scene for what's going on. And so hear these words of our father. There was a certain man of Ramathan Zophon, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elehu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, and Ephrathite. These are some pretty cool names if you guys are looking for kids' names. Um, No one will bully them on the playground for sure. Verse 2, he had two wives, the name of the one wife was Hannah, and the name of the other was Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters, but to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her arrival her arrival used to provoke her grievously, to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Alkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, But will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord. I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as worthless as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Just so far, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is rich Uh, that it continues to work, that it transforms the lives of individual people. And so, Father, I ask that you would meet us where we are this morning, that all of us are coming different places and different challenges and different realities, but these ancient words continue to speak to us. And so I ask that every person that comes up here and shares from this prayer, that they would do so with a heart uh, that is anchored in you. And so it's to that end that I ask that you would stand in our bodies, think through our minds, speak through our vocal cords, those things you'd have us know, say, and do. May the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. May they be a sweet fragrance to you. You are our King and you are our Redeemer. Have your way in this place this very morning. In Jesus' beautiful name we pray, amen. First Samuel chapter 2, verse 1 to 2. And Hannah prayed and said, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. The last time we uh, read about Hannah, just the very chapter before, um, and now the Hannah that we see, that we've just read in those first two verses, we see two different Hannahs. There's two different Hannahs here. The one was deeply distressed and wept bitterly because she couldn't fall pregnant. But the one that we, we read about now in these first two verses, she's exalting. This is a woman who is now praising the Lord. And it's because she has received a son. It's because she has received a son. And so she starts by saying, my heart rejoices in the Lord. I want us to notice here that she doesn't say, my heart rejoices in my son. She's not going, my heart is rejoicing in Samuel, but no, rather it rejoices in the Lord. Now, if you understand a little bit of the Jewish custom, because Elkanah was uh, a Levite, the practice was your first son would leave the home and go and serve as a priest in the tabernacle. And so that that was what was going to happen for Samuel. In fact, if we continue to read chapter 2, we realize that that. Samuel was actually leaving. When she was praying, Samuel was leaving to go and serve with Eli. So, so if you think about it, she has never had children. She has Samuel. He's now having to leave, but she still exalts. She still praises because she recognizes that it's the Lord who gives everything. It's the Lord who gives everything. Notice she says that my, my horn is exalted in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. You see, in the Bible, when we see the word horn, or when they speak about the horn, it's used as a picture of strength. It's used as a picture of strength, but not just strength, beauty as well. See, wildlife experts, and I had to read this because I am by no means a wildlife expert wildlife experts tell us that when one of these great horned animals scuff the ground and begins to rhythmically swing its horns back and forth, it's preparing for a deadly charge. And so if you are to see a, a beast in the wild with horns coming at you, be aware. Be very aware. See, an animal's horn is its weapon of defense and vengeance. It's its strength and also, it's ornament of beauty. It represents beauty. And so when Hannah says, my horn exalted, is exalted in the Lord, she's saying, my strength and my beauty. We could even say the, maybe the two things that identify us. We use those to identify ourselves. My, my strength, whether it's physically or intellectually. My beauty, what I look like. She says, no, I take all of that. And it's exalted in the Lord. I give him praise for everything that I have. For everything that I have. She then goes on to say that I smile at my enemies. Her words are, my mouth derides at my enemies. She's here talking about who who is constantly provoking her because she couldn't have children. But if we take a step back, we should think about this as all our enemies. Those who wish evil against us, those who seek to persecute us because we rejoice in the Lord, because we find our identity in the Lord, they look at us and they're like, what's wrong with you? Why would you make those decisions? But we find Hannah saying, listen, I smile before my enemies. Notice the Lord doesn't remove the enemies. This is Psalm 23 type language. Where the Lord prepares a table before our enemies. So so some of us, I want you to know that God may not remove your enemies. What you're experiencing, what you're going through, He may not remove it. But because you are hidden in Him, He will give you everything that you need to endure it. Because you are hidden in His wings. But then she transitions. She transitions into verse two, and, and to explain it, I'm going to have to do some, some Hebrew grammar education, all right? So brace yourselves, brace yourselves. She says, there is none holy like the Lord. See, in this verse, Hannah shows a classic form of Hebrew poetry, what they call repetitive parallelism. To say the Lord is holy is to say he's completely set apart, that he is unique, and that no one is like him. So when she continues in the same verse and says, for there is none besides you, she's saying that the same thing as there is none holy like the Lord, only saying it in different words. When she says there is no rock like our God, she again saying the same thing in different words. This is Hebrew poetry. See, Hebrew poetry doesn't rhyme with sounds, but it rhymes with ideas. And so the ideas in these three lines of 1 Samuel chapter 2 verse 2 all rhyme together having different words yet sounding the same this is what they are emphasizing that god is so great there is no one not one in all of the universe who compares with him it isn't that he has the same power and wisdom and purity that we have it's just that he has more he has so much more his power and wisdom and purity is of a different order than ours beyond ours Do you think we believe in God the way Hannah does? And I just want to set the tone as we navigate through this prayer. I want us to start by saying, do do we believe? Do we believe in the way that Hannah did? And if we say yes, it simply means because I rejoice in your salvation, it's because our salvation is in the Lord. Our salvation is in the Lord that we acknowledge that he's the only one that can save us. He's the only one that can save us. Do we see Him this way? Do we see Him as our source of everything, our source of wisdom, power, provision? Is He our salvation? And so I want you to ask yourself that. I'm going to pray for us, and, and as we navigate through it, I want you to ask yourself that. Do I see Him as my salvation? Is He the source of everything? And so, Father, we, we come now and, and we ask that as we move through this prayer that that, that would be the question that's constantly ringing in our ears and in our hearts. And we want to rejoice in the same way Hannah did. And, and rejoice in you, and not in our circumstances, not in the things that you give us. That we want to be in the shadow of your wings. Because only there are we able to, to engage and navigate when our enemies are seeking evil against us. There is none like you, Father. And so that is my hope, that we would see you in that light. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
1: Hello, hello. Morning, you guys. Um, I'm going to dive right in. This is a um, super big privilege to, to dive into this prayer with Anna. It's, it's a very special part of the Bible, and um, there's something extraordinary that, truly extraordinary that happens here. I'm going to slow down a bit. Uh, I still only have seven minutes, but I want to get through a few things. Um, There's something beautiful that happens here um, to me. At the end of chapter one, you see how Hannah surrenders. She's been fighting and fighting and fighting and losing and losing and losing. And she surrenders and she wins. And there's a beautiful revelation that comes with that. She lays down her life before God and says, look, I've tried. I'm not doing it. I need you. And there's a victory. there's a beautiful revelation in that. And immediately in her prayer, you can see the revelation she received from God and all of this. And she starts unpacking it. We go to verse 3, if you guys can just put it up. Um, Talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth. She realized something very serious here. We are in a constant pursuit of accomplishing something, all of us. We're all, every week, I plan, I'm going to accomplish this, I'm going to accomplish that, I'm going to hit that, I'm going to do that hard, that better, that faster, that smarter, cooler, smoother, whatever. That's our life. Our whole life. But it's all me, me, me. So I'm going to do that this week. I'm going to study harder. I'm going to run faster. I'm going to do more. Where does God play into any of that? Does he want you to run that week? Does he want you to study that week? Did he have a plan for you that week? A greater plan? A victory? But we're all busy trying to do our own things, to be self-righteous and to accomplish things. There's a a famous uh, astrophysicist from the 20th century, Carl Sagan. He said this. He said, if you want to create an apple pie from scratch, you would first have to create the universe. We can't do it without God, guys. We really can't. And she hits it here. She says, everybody that boasts and that are proud in their own things... Um, they're running an empty pursuit in this life. It says, let not be proud in more. In James 4 verse 6, it said, but God gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And my biggest example here, I want to be, if you'll let me, if you take Adam and Eve for, for, for a second here. Take Adam and Eve when they were in the garden before they sinned. Check out the nature of their relationship with God. They were humble towards him. They went better than anyone They had perfect relationship with God through His grace. They were humble and dependent on the Lord. And what was the result? He said, okay, now you rule the universe. Then when they sinned and they chose the knowledge of good and evil, now they can decide what is right and wrong in their lives. They lost that right. Because now they have to accomplish it by their own strength. And there's a big divide on the timeline on earth when that happened. When we're humble and truly humble towards the Lord, because now we get a, a lot in Christianity where we get this false humility, where God says, my daughter, you are capable of all things. And you're like, shh, I know you think I'm capable of all things, but I know I'm really not. You think that's humility, that's not. It's you saying, I know better than you. You think, but you're delusional. <laughs> I know I'm not capable of what you're saying I'm capable of. And um, there's a, a famous, I think it's Smith Willworth who said, but, don't quote me on that, I'll, if you, I'll check it afterwards, I forgot to check his name, but he said, um, he wrote this piece, this beautiful piece on humility, and he said, humility simply as a Christian is one thing, saying, yes Lord. God says, I died for you and gave you the whole world, yes Lord, you are capable of all things to my strength, yes Lord, um, I've removed all your sin far from you as the east is from the west, yes Lord, that is humility, and in that there is strength. Um, and there's absolute beauty in that. There's also Galatians 6, um, verse 14, it says, where Paul speaks, he says, I will boast in nothing except my Lord Jesus Christ, because he is my strength. He is my wisdom. Um, I want to move on to the, uh, to the second part of that verse. It says, for the, Lord go- for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. And I think this is one of the biggest traps we all fall in constantly is we are constantly trying to accomplish things. And the second thing that we as the human race do after that is we weigh, measure, and judge everything, okay? I'm um, either the best thing that ever happened or I'm unworthy or look what that person's doing, failing, losing, loser, sad, okay? Um, is that kind of a thing we're constantly trying to accomplish and then also constantly weighing and measuring. But with what? With what ruler? With what absolute godlike divinity do we think we possess that we can judge and measure things? We can't. So this system is fundamentally fundamentally flawed, right? We try and stand on our own knowledge and our own strength, and then we give ourselves a hard time for failing, or we praise ourselves for succeeding. And there's this vicious circle that we're stuck in, in that space. She said, for the Lord is a God of knowledge. He is our unlimited source. God is our unlimited source of knowledge, of power, of grace, of glory, and he gives it freely. He says, he's constantly standing out with his hand like this to us, and just, just take just take it. I'm right here. I became a man for you. I died for you on the cross. I rose to heaven. I have wiped away all your sins, all your fears, all your tears, all your pain, all your everything. Just just take my hand. I'll show you. But we don't. And that's where we need to step up. But you realize this. He says God weighs things. He looks at things. And this is one thing that I'd just love to challenge, challenge all of us on. Can you imagine that God says that through Jesus Christ... That he has taken away all your sins forever at the cross. God also claims that he is love. He is the God of love. And it says in Corinthians 13 that God, that love does not keep score of wrong done against it. So if God doesn't keep score of wrong done against it, right? Imagine how he sees you on a day when you wake up in the morning and he sees you without sin, without flaws, without mistakes sees you with absolutely every inch of potential that you've ever had since he dreamed you up before he created the world. Imagine you seeing yourself like that for one day. How does that feel? Imagine you seeing your neighbor like that for one day, even though they don't deserve it because they have flaws. We all have flaws, okay? But we're weighing them, measuring them. We have to look at the world through God's eyes. He weighs things, and he'll teach us. We move to verse 4. It says that the bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. And this is a beautiful thing because there's an awesome juxtaposition here. If you think the bows of the mighty are broken, that's sort of a mighty, okay? That's by m- m- human strength. We measure people and think, yes, that guy is amazing. That woman's amazing. That is a mighty person. But she claims that their efforts are feeble and they excuse me, not feeble. Their efforts are useless. Their bows are broken. It doesn't matter how strong they are or incredible they are. But the feeble, right, or the meek bind on strength. But that strength is the strength of our Lord and our God. Um, And that is something that's from heaven. That's something that cannot be broken. It cannot run out. It cannot fail. And it's something that we should be standing on, not on our own strength. And um, it's beautiful how she realizes in this moment where she's now surrendered that she realized that she's stronger than she's ever been. Rebecca St. James said that somehow I'm always taller when I'm on my knees. And... um, that's really what she had here. Um, in John fourteen twelve, and this is now Jesus, and I love it when Jesus says, Verily, verily, or truly, truly, in the ESV, he says, Truly, truly, I say unto you, whoever believes in me and will also, do, will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Jesus Christ himself says, whatever human being believes in me and walks with me will do what I do. How much infinitely better is what, what I can accomplish on my best day. Infinitely, infinitely better. And I just want to move to the to the last verse. Um to verse five. It says, Those who were full and have hired themselves out, have hired themselves out for bread, and those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. And she does exactly the same thing here. And it's a beautiful thing to see. There's a slight reference here to Esau who changed his birthright for food, who changed Everything is eternal journey and is eternal worth with God for something material in this world. And um, she says, Those who are full have hired themselves out. It's almost like they sold themselves, sold their bodies, sold their souls to gain something in this life. And we do that every week with our time, our talents, our emotions, everywhere. Hire everything out to gain something and accomplish something. But to what end? And in the next verse it says, or the next part of that verse is. But those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. And those are the people who rely on the Lord. When the disciples asked Jesus, um, how should we pray, Father? He says, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us today our daily bread. You be our provider. You provide me with strength, with knowledge, with provision with clothing, with everything that I need. It says in Matthew 6.25, it says, therefore, I'll, do not be anxious. And he keeps on speaking. He says, don't think what you will eat or drink or put on your body. Where will you live or anything like that? Because God says, I've got that covered if you'll let me. Because, because of human free will, he yeah, has to stand back when you say, no, I decide to live without you. And um, in finishing, just finishing up here, I have to say that, man. I can't say it three times this time because I don't have enough time. Um, It ends with this last verse. It says, the barren is born seven, and she who has many children is forlorn. And we can get into depth here because of the number seven and it's perfect and the actual number of children involved here. But it speaks to that this barren one who is barren in a worldly sense, who is weak, has now done something perfect through the power of God. And this person who has achieved a lot of things in this world on their own strength, is forlorn or is withering away. And that's just what I want to end with. We truly have to repent and change our minds and surrender our lives to Christ so that we might truly live. And stop chasing the wind or chasing our accomplishments and these measurements. Um, because we know so many people, and we can all attest to this, so many people who have achieved a lot in life that are super wealthy and accomplished great things, but their lives withered away, their families withered away, And then we're left with nothing in this world. Okay. So my prayer would be for us, Lord Jesus Christ, on this day, that you, Father, will open our minds. Father, that you'll blow through us like a mighty wind and just release us from all the things of this world that's just holding on to us, Father. That we all realize that you are the creator, that you are almighty and that you are all powerful. You are the greatest wisdom and the greatest power and the greatest joy and the greatest love that has ever existed, that does exist today and will ever exist, Father. We ask that you will renew our minds constantly every single day that we will understand this truth, understand your worth, your knowledge, and your effect that you can have in our lives and that you want to have daily, Father. I ask that we will lay down our lives, lay down our our vain and petty dreams, Father, for this world and for our weeks and for our days and just sit at your feet and ask you, Lord, step in and take the reins of my life and may I walk with you on this day. We love you, Father, and we praise you and we glorify your name. Amen. We
2: look at what the passage has said, and we respond, or almost build up from it. And so what we've done is we've written a prayer. Um, I'm going to read. It's based on the first five verses we've already thought of. And so these are the words that respond to those. um, And just read as as I pray. Lord God, our hearts exalt in you, our Lord. Our strength is found in uplifting your name enemies become irrelevant, for our salvation is not by them. Our salvation is by you alone. Help us rejoice in this salvation alone. You are the one and only God, the holy and steadfast God upon whom we ask we place our trust today as we gather. Give us words seasoned in humility and void of arrogance. As the only God who knows all things by this knowledge, all our ways are known to you and judged. You, O Lord, break the evil and bind with strength the weak. You look after the hungry and give bread so that we may hunger no more. Our God, whom is holy, all-knowing, and the only God, we exalt in your name and rejoice in your salvation. And thank you for such a gift, freely given, in our Lord Jesus Christ alone. For your glory and our good we pray. Amen. Amen. So, we're going
3: to dive straight back into verse 6, looking back at Hannah's prayer. Um, So, the first verse there in verse 6, it says, the Lord kills and brings to life. Now, I want to pause there for a second because it's like, for a second there, I was like, is Hannah saying God's a murderer? (laughs) The Lord kills and brings to life. And then I realized it's not about God killing so much as God being in charge, God being king. We remember back then, a king could say, off with your head, or all of that. But this king is not a king of off with your head. He's a king over death and life. He's a king who kills but brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. Now, I want to pause there for a second, because like that idea of raising up is something that we take for granted. we sort of nonchalant about it. Us, this side of the cross, we're like, yeah, resurrection, cool. But guys, resurrection is shocking. (laughs) The idea of someone who's dead being raised again is shocking. And it's even more shocking. Hannah has a perception of resurrection in the Old Testament. Back before Christ, she understood that that God is the one in charge. God is the one who rules over life and death. I want to actually pause for a little bit more there. Not too long because we don't have that much time. um, And look at just Hannah's perception of the world, how Hannah sees it. Oni spoke to us a bit about it, how Hannah sees the world when we look at her prayer. She sees God as the ruler, as the king, the, the king over everything, with everything belonging to him. And like, if you think back to her story of no son, son, son being given to God, it sort of picture, helps us understand why and how and It just sort of enriches the way that she sees the world. Remember, no life, no son, barren to life, to a son. So, and then giving that son back to God, although realizing that it was never her son so much as it was always God's son. Everything she has is God's and is because it's God and is for him as the ultimate king and ruler of everything. And the question that Ani raised, and I I also want to raise it again, just sort of as a recap, is how do we see the world? Do we see it like Hannah? Do we see God as the ruler over everything? Do we see God as the control of everything? I want to sort of, I, I don't know if you noticed, like, as we've been going through Hannah's prayer, there's a sort of sense of freedom or liberty with which she prays. I don't know, especially when you compare it to the Hannah, like Ani spoke to us before, the Hannah before and the Hannah now, the way she's praying, it's like she's free. And I was trying to work out, like, how do you understand this sort of freedom or liberty that we have? And I was thinking of examples with like, a boss and the people working for him. And then I realized, actually, the best example is when you're a kid, life's great, especially if you had great parents. Like, you were free. You had no responsibilities. You didn't have to be in control. You didn't have to worry about bills. You didn't have to worry about those things. It's almost like being an adult is hard work. So, like Hannah, in this prayer, she's, she's got the same freedom of a child, the freedom of a child of God where she's relinquishing control, trusting her God, trusting God who's in charge of everything. And that freedom is affecting the way she sees the world. She sees God as the ultimate one in charge, and she relinquishes control to Him instead of trying to control it herself. And I want us to notice that freedom and ask, do we have that freedom? Do we have that liberty? Do we trust God as the one in control? Or do we still, as Jay was saying, keep control, try and do things, maintain the control ourselves? Or do we sort of joyfully and freely praise God as the ruler? Now I want to carry on to verse 7 there. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. Almost exactly the same, sort of echoing what we've just said. God is in control. Poverty and riches, fame and fortune, fame and shame are in his control. He's in charge. Not us. Not the economy. Not the potential downgrade to junk status. God is in control. (laughs) Full stop. I don't know. It's sort of. God is ultimately in control here. And Hannah's perception of the world is that God is the ruler. Now, as we move into verse 8, it gets really real in a sense. I don't know if you notice this sort of prophetic hint to where we are, this side of the cross, where He raises the poor from the dust, He lifts the needy from the heap, and makes them sit with princes and inherit the seat of honor. Now, I was trying to work that out a little bit, because like the ash heap, like, what is going on there? Like, ash, in my mind, is like after you've bried and everyone's gone home and it's boring, and then you've got to clean that ash out the bribed. It's like the worst job ever, right? But then I was thinking, actually, you know what? It's when they talk about the needy from the ash heap. Like, the ash heap isn't a rubbish dump. It's like a burnt rubbish dump. <laughs> so it's like the worst of the worst. It's like you must be rejected, despised, a criminal, or whatever, to be on the ash heap, And what does God do? What does God do, according to Hannah? And what is her perception of the Lord? He makes them sit with princes and then inherit. Notice the word inherit. The seat of honor. So from like (laughs) ash heap, burnt rubbish, (laughs) to inheriting a seat of honor. Like that's the transition that God creates. And uh, it sort of just once again reminds us, like, do we see God that way? And reminds us, like, do we see us that in the way that God created us through Christ to receive and inherit the seats of honor? Now, I'm going to move straight on to that last section because this is huge. Is the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. So, he owns the pillars, and on them he has set the world. So, I don't know if you notice. firstly the pillars are his, and then he has set. So, it's not like he's going to or he's busy. He has set the world, so he's already done it. He's already in control. It's already his, and they're on his pillars. Do you notice who's in control? <laughs> it's sort of quite obvious there, and I just want to quickly pause for a second. We, we sort of take pillars for granted as well, like pillars or columns. In our sort of world, they're decorative. You kind of put fancy little sort of Greek pillars on your wall to look fancy, but back then, they were like fundamental to architecture and to buildings. They held the roof up. They held the ceiling up. You put a pillar and you put your ornaments on it. It was huge. And now those pillars are God's. He sets the world on them. He has set the world on them. Ultimately, our very existence belongs to God. He is the ultimate king and ultimate ruler. And I want us to praise Him and glorify Him as that king and relinquish and be free and joyful in that. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you as our king and ruler. Lord, we know that in of ourselves, we, we try and control, we try rule, we try do our own thing. But Lord, we need to know that you set the world on your pillars. You are ultimately in control. You are the ultimate king in charge of everything. Everything is yours and you control it. And Lord, this is not a, this should be a freeing, liberating, joyful thing for us, Lord, that we praise you and thank you for it. Lord, we praise you and thank you that we don't have to be responsible for it in the sense that like you in control and that we can sort of enjoy that freedom in you and that f- in freedom in you of inheriting your kingdom through Christ. We pray all of this in your name. Amen. Thanks, Carl. So we then turn
4: to verses 9 and 10. And in these two verses, we have two or three focal points to Anna's prayer. But not only are they three focal points, they are They serve as prophecies about the coming of Lord Jesus Christ, 1,000 years later. Explicit prophecies. So we read verse 9 together. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. So in this verse, we learn about the faithful ones, or what we could call the eventual winners. These, These faithful ones are not the strongest the most powerful, the wealthiest, the most popular, or any other worldly successful trait. These faithful ones include people such as Hannah herself, later on Mary, the mother of Jesus, Jesus' disciples, the apostle Paul, all of whom are faithful because they feared God and follow his word and seek his will for their lives. Hannah contrasts the faithful ones with the wicked, though. She says that the wicked do not, cannot, she hints that the wicked do not, cannot, will not ultimately prevail because they act outside of the will of God. They ignore his word and they seek their own wills for their lives. The wicked would include people such as Penanah, Herod, the Pharisees, others who rejected Jesus Christ because he didn't come as the Savior with might and force to rescue Israel from the Roman rule. We can see from this verse that we learn from Hannah that when we pray, we need to, to ask God to equip us with the obedience for his word, with the love for his word, for his will. We then go to verse 10. And Hannah explores the Lord's adversaries. Or what we could call the eventual losing side. These adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. It's important to note that it's not enough to merely believe that God has the power and ability to break those who oppose him. But we need to acknowledge that that he will only wield this power for his glory, his righteousness, and his name's sake. I'll say that again. He will only wield his power for his glory, his righteousness, and his name's sake. God blesses Hannah with Samuel, not to gain stature in her community, not to get one over Penina, but to raise up a leader who would ultimately pave the way for two great kings. Because of the life of Samuel, King David would be established in Israel. And because of this, God's salvation plan in Jesus would come to be. When we pray, do we surrender our wills to God? Do we seek His glory and not our own? We then come to the climax of Hannah's prayer. We've gone through all 10 verses now. We come to this. She says, The Lord will judge the ends of the earth, He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Hannah's prayer extends beyond the kingdom of Israel, right to the very ends of the earth. And she explicitly mentions the word king. And she uses, in in the Hebrew, she uses the word Messiah, which means anointed one, which when we translate that means, is Christos. We know that she's, she's prophesying about Jesus Christ here. Zechariah, 1,000 years later, the father of John the Baptist, quotes Hannah in Luke 1, verse 69, when he prophetically calls Jesus the horn of salvation. He directly quotes from 1 Samuel 2, verse 10. And around about the same time as Zechariah, another woman prayed a prayer that sounded astonishing like the prayer that we've just gone through. This woman was Mary, the mother of Jesus Christ. She prayed a prayer that some of you may know as the Magnificat or Mary's Song of Praise. And I'm going to read it to you from Luke 1, verses 46 to 55. Just think about these words as you reflect on on the Scriptures. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in my Savior. For He has looked on the humble estate of His servants. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. You see, what Hannah knew when she was praying this prayer, Mary knew and she knew more. Mary was told that she would bear a child that would be a very great king, the greatest king, the Messiah. Whose kingdom would never end. And Mary knew that this king would turn the world upside down. Hannah's song in the, whole, in the context of the whole Bible is an anticipation of Mary's song. This has to mean that as, as, as Hannah prayed this prayer, the God of all knowledge, that His Holy Spirit was the inspiration in Hannah's prayer. So as we reflect on this prayer is, are we surrendered to the will of God? Are we obedient to him? Are we allowing his Holy Spirit to fill us and inspire us when we pray? Because as Christians, we have access to that Holy Spirit. Lord, many of us come to you today as people filled with anxiety afraid of our problems, afraid of the realities that we face. But Father God, it is our desire to remain faithful to you, to remain in you, to have you fight for us, and to take a stand for your glory, Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that in you we have victory, that our enemies have been defeated. It is our prayer, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would strengthen us to exalt your name on high to all the ends of the earth, Lord, through our words, our actions, our thoughts, and our deeds. We exalt you, Yahweh. We lift your name on high. You are the King of kings. You are Lord of lords. In you, we are assured of perfect justice. You are sovereign, Lord. You are all-knowing and all-powerful. And in that, we rest assured. Amen.